0: Stories and narr- Thank you. Stories and narratives and imaginative thinking have a very particular role here in kind of guarding against the singular and normative ideas about a technologically determined future that, that work in ways that are exclusive. And these narratives, this imaginative thinking, is in some ways, fundamentally ethical. As we create new worlds within the limitlessness of the imagination, we come to expand our being as individuals and collectively within the real world. We can test ideas and test their implications and see them through in in critical and emerging ways. So Afrofuturism and African Futurism are these dual concepts that have come about to name this kind of critical speculative literary fantasy space about the future of the African continent. And Nenedi Okorafor, who is a wonderful Nigerian science fiction writer, coined the term African futurisms in response to being called an Afrofuturist. And for her, she writes that Afrofuturism considers what could have been, and it's preoccupied with this return to the pre-colonial ideal and imagines African futures largely from a Western center. But African futurism concerns itself with the possibilities of what can be and what is now and draws its inspiration from distinctly African cultural values and cosmologies and sociologies. So this week we've been celebrating Africa Day. Divine, one of our panelists was on the radio last night talking about what Africa means, what African, uh, what Africa Day means. So I really don't think there's anything more poignant to end this kind of fantastic series of workshops than to be ending it with the future of this continent. So I'm going to quickly introduce our speakers. We have uh, three presenters, followed by a dear colleague of mine who's going to be the discussant, having opening remarks from Dr. Stephen Cave and closing remarks from Cantor, uh, Dr. Kanta Dhal. And we hope to have considerable time to discuss and engage with all the people present here today. So Dr. Stephen Cave is the executive director of the levy Centre for the Future of Intelligence, a senior research associate in the Faculty of Philosophy and fellow of Hughes Hall, all at the University of Cambridge. He has a PhD in philosophy from Cambridge and then joined the British Foreign Office and served as a policy and advisor and diplomat. He has subsequently written and spoken on, on a wide range of philosophical and scientific subjects and most recently leading the work of the uh, LCFI around artificial intelligence in really kind of cutting edge and world leading ways. Um, so Stephen will, will give us some opening remarks about the um, African narratives uh, place within the global narratives of AI program of work and then Dr Ralph Borland is our first presenter. So Ralph is an artist, a curator, and interdisciplinary knowledge worker based in Cape Town. And his project, African Robots and Spacecraft, which I, I believe you'll be talking to today, Ralph, uh, are collaborations with street wire artists in Southern Africa to introduce electronics and mechanics to their practice. And the monumental electromechanical music-making spaceship sculpture, Dub Ship One, which I hope we'll hear more about, Black Starliner was launched at the Zeitz Museum of Contemporary Art Africa in 2019. In 2020, Ralph Borland's studio completed two public artworks for the city of Cape Town and with degrees in fine art, interactive telecommunications, and now a PhD from Trinity College Dublin, which critiqued first world design interventions in the developing world. His art design piece suited for subversion is about a protective and performance suit for street protests. And it's in a permanent collection of the New York Museum of Modern Art. He curated the exhibition, Future Present, Design in a Time of Urgency, which opened at Science Gallery, Detroit in September, 2020. And across his work, which we'll hear more about now, Ralph pursues an interdisciplinary approach to tease out issues of power, activism and social engagement via designed objects, often through collaborative artistic practice. Then Dr. Nadine Moonsami, who is our second speaker today, is a senior lecturer in the English Literature Department at the University of Pretoria. She is currently writing a monograph on contemporary South African fiction and otherwise conducts research and teaches on, South Af- on science fiction in Africa. Her debut novel, The Unfamous Five, was published by Mojaji Books in 2019 and was a finalist for the Best Fiction Prize of the 2021 National Institute for Humanities and Social Science Awards. Um, our third speaker here is Dr. Divine Few, who is a social anthropologist from Cameroon. He is the director of HUMA, the Institute for Humanities in Africa at the University of Cape Town, And his research focuses on the politics of suffering and smiling, particularly examining how African youth seek to find ways of smiling in the midst of their suffering. He has worked across Africa, particularly Botswana, Cameroon, Senegal and South Africa, and his current research focuses on artificial intelligence and the ethics of care in Africa. And our last, our discussant who will follow these three speakers is Dr. Bouhle Kanile, who has Uh, a close colleague of mine here at the Human Sciences Research Council. He's a social psychologist, black existential scholar and creative writer based at the Impact Center of the HSRC. He has a PhD from the University of Cape Town in psychology and his areas of interest include black existential philosophy, critical race theory and intergroup relations. And then, finally, uh, Dr. Kantadi-Hal will give us some closing remarks. Dr. Kantadi-Hal is a Senior Research Fellow on the AI Narratives Project. She is one of the Project Leads and PIs for the Global Narratives work that the LCFI, the levy Hume Centre for the Future of Intelligence, is conducting, and the Project Lead on decolonizing Artificial Intelligence. In her research, she explores how fictional and non-fictional stories shape the development and public understanding of artificial intelligence. And Cantor's work is, sits at the intersection of science communication, literature and science and science fiction. She has a default in science communication from the University of Oxford, and a thesis entitled, The Stories of Quantum Physics, where she investigated communication of conflicting interpretations of quantum physics to adults and children. She is the co-editor of the collection, together with Stephen Cave, of A.I. Narratives, A History of Imaginative Thinking About Intelligent Machines, which was published last year by OUP, by Oxford University Press, and is currently working on uh, another monograph with Dr. Stephen Cave on A.I. um, and mythology. So we have a really fantastic lineup of speakers. I'm really excited for this session. Um, so, Stephen, if I can hand over to you to give some opening remarks about the project. Thank you.
1: Yes, thank you so much, Rachel, uh, Rachel, for that introduction. Um, welcome, everyone, from me. Welcome back, if you've attended either of the um, previous workshops. And uh, it's an honor to be opening the third Global AI Narrative Sub-Saharan Africa workshop uh, with Rachel today. So as Rachel mentioned, I'm the Director of the Lieberham Centre for the Future of Intelligence at the University of Cambridge. We're a highly interdisciplinary research centre looking at the ethics and impact of AI. In fact, I think we were the first centre worldwide dedicated to AI ethics that really brings together the full range of humanities and social science scholars with engineers and computer scientists. And today we run a a wide range of programmes ranging from exploring the relationship between machine and biological intelligence through to looking at gender bias in the AI industry and uh, many other approaches. Um, Now when I opened the first workshop in this series, uh, AI narratives in sub-Saharan Africa, I noted that the name of our centre, the Centre for the Future of Intelligence, shows not only that we take AI seriously but also that we're very interested in the future. That is, we think it's crucial to understand what visions of the future are driving the new technologies that shape our lives. Where do they come from? Whom do they benefit? What ideologies and power relations and socio-political forms do they embed? Indeed, I could say whose visions of the future are driving these technologies? In particular, because so much of the technology that we use comes of course from just a few sites like Silicon Valley, maybe China, to some extent, Russia, but other regions, vast areas of the world, consider these technologies to be entirely imposed upon them. For example, we have a report coming out next month on Middle Eastern and North African visions of AI, which describes how many people in that region see themselves as in an AI desert. With just a couple of small oases of resistance against these hegemonic narratives that are imposed upon them. And this matters because the technologies are not only shaped by particular visions of the future, but they also in turn shape them, reinforcing or sometimes subverting them, making certain possible futures imaginable and obscuring others. And as researchers, we can help to make visible these visions of the future that are implicit in dominant discourses of AI and its products and their governance, and we can offer alternatives. And that really brings me to the purpose of the Global AI Narratives Project, of which this event is a part. For the past three years, we've been working with partners around the world, fantastic partners like the Human Science Research Council in South Africa, To explore alternative narratives to the Hollywood hegemony. It's those mainstream narratives that we explored in our first book that uh, Rachel kindly mentioned um, that I edited with Cantor and Sarah Dillon, AI narratives, a history of imaginative thinking about intelligent machines, that really looked at mainstream Western Anglophone narratives and it became very clear while pursuing that work that mainstream Western narratives are highly historically contingent and very limited as well as ideological. And there are many other ways of envisioning our future with AI. So following the workshops that we've had around the globe as part of the Global AI Narratives Project, we'll soon be bringing out a new volume, Imagining AI, How the World Sees Intelligent Machines, which would explore a much more diverse set of visions from around the world. So, as Rachel mentioned, this is our third and final workshop in uh, South Africa and one of the very last in a, in our series, which has um, reached nearly twenty workshops now. And the topic afro uh, African Futurisms speaks directly to these critical themes of who gets to imagine the future. So I'm really excited to hear what our panelists have to say. And before I hand back to Rachel to hand over to them, I'd just like to thank, The funders who have supported this project, the Templeton World Charity Foundation, Deep Minds, Ethics and Society Programme and the Cambridge Africa Alberada Research Fund. And most of all, I'd like to thank the fantastic team at the Human Sciences Research Council, in particular, Rachel, our host today, for their amazing work in putting this event together. Thank you.
0: Thanks so much, Stephen. Uh, Ralph, we're going to move directly to you.
2: Great.
3: Uh, thanks. For, thanks very much, Rachel. Um, thanks, uh, thanks, and uh, thanks. Um, thanks, Stephen. And thanks, Kanta. Thanks for my biography, Rachel. And I should add that I am now a researcher at the Institute for Humanities in Africa, um, investigating the uh, the future of artificial intelligence and in healthcare. So that's a post I've taken up a few months ago, where I'll be applying my Uh, experiences and techniques from art and future studies to that field. So I'm going to keep an eye on the time. I have 15 minutes for this presentation. Um, I'm going to give you uh, a brief overview of some of my work with my projects, African Robots and Spacecraft. Um, And then in in the discussion, I'm sure we can pick up on some of the points around it. So, yeah, before we worry about AI taking over the world, we should get our Zoom game sorted. Um, And so I'm going to attempt to share my screen and see that everything's working. So I'd also welcome uh, feedback from the participants to uh, tell me that everything is is doing what it should. Hold on, that's odd. Um, One try, hold on a second. Okay, that's fine. Um, um, I'm just getting a message that I need to enable something in order to share audio, which is a new, new, uh, let me just see, that's right. Are you now seeing a screen that says African robots versus spacecraft?
0: Yes, we can see it.
3: And, um does this advance you to the next slide
0: yes yes
3: yes. you can see a little car great this is kind of hard to see from my side thanks very much okay so i have a project called african robots versus spacecraft in which i work with street wire artists uh people who make their living on the streets of southern african cities making wire art and selling them to customers so um where this starts is with uh, people making wire cars as children. And this uh, is dated to the 1950s um, by the VNA uh, Museum of Childhood, for example, where they have a display on, on wire cars from Africa. This is a wire car that I made when I was about 13 or 14 years old in Zimbabwe. Um, and it's a Citroën uh, de chevaux, which I'm sure you can all identify. Um, and it's, it's an indication of my early interest in this art form which starts with children uh, representing technologies in their environments. So it would have been especially um, long distance trucks and buses going through rural areas, and then children using available materials like uh, uh, hardware wire, fencing wire, to make their own copies of these new technologies in their environments. And I I think it's a very interesting gesture because it's about urges towards uh, representation um it's a it's a vernacular art form and there's also elements of aspiration to like owning a technology that you might you know might aspire to have when you're an adult Uh, so wire art for me encapsulates a whole lot of interesting concerns around what makes us human really uh, in terms of making art making technology telling stories having aspirations and imagination and this is a, a a wire car that i bought in a small town in south africa which is very crude. I use it as an example to show how you can have these very crudely put together representations um, that still have something interesting about them, speaking about the circumstances of the person who made them. So this is a uh, made with thick wire, put together quite roughly. It has an element from uh, toy cars in it. So it's a sort of a hack of found or bought technology combined with their own representation. But then you move on to these very sophisticated examples of wire art, like this Audi with a car sound system inside it. And this was made by Louis Caluzzi, who's one of the wire artists that I work with. Um, So this is now an adult who's spent their entire life making wire art um, and have really reached a level of, 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 of a fine art or a very skilled craftsperson who makes these representations. And so all around Southern Africa, you'll find uh, people making a living from selling cars and then also animals, birds, insects, fish, and so on. And so about seven years ago, I started uh, exploring an idea which was to combine cheap electronics with wire art in order to make uh, what I call African robots. Uh, so demonstrating a concept, having an idea, when we're talking about storytelling in this workshop, I wanted to tell stories uh, using technology and about technology. So I'm imagining that wire artists in the near future are uh, making uh, little wire objects that are animated and responsive, and initially we started using cell phone parts from old Nokia phones as the elements for these, for these works. So this is the Starling, the first African robot.
4: And um, can you hear audio, by the way? No, we can't hear the audio,
0: but
2: we can see it. Okay. Uh, I'm not sure if when you're sending your, your presentation, did you select the way
5: it says uh, share with sound?
3: I did. Yeah. And that's, I brought up a little dialogue window saying, um, that I needed to approve something and put my password in, which I did. So, but perhaps okay. there is some, perhaps there's still some issue with it. Um, yeah, but never mind. we will, we'll move on. So that's a little animated, uh, bird. Um, we've made more sophisticated examples since this is a crested barbit. Uh, this is a praying mantis that I made with students at Michaelis, the art school at, uh, at UCT. So, the, I taught a class based on African robots in which I also brought wire artists into the academy to teach art students how to do wire art, and they made some very nice examples like this, this mantis. And this is a, a, a termite or Juru in Shana, so this is Majuru, uh, um, what's many termites, and this is uh, made with a custom made uh, circuit board that we use in our projects. And I'll show you a little clip of this in a
6: animation. So this is an ant that walks around,
3: and um when it bumps into something, it reverses and and moves away again. so i I learned as part of my master's degree how to uh, use uh, simple electronics to animate things for art, so that's what I'm the knowledge that I'm bringing into play here. And then the other wing of the project, apart from African robots, is spacecraft. Spacecraft focuses on science fiction subjects. This is our kind of um, our, our logo or our tableau. Um, so we, we, we present ourselves as a kind of knockoff of uh, Star Wars being a famous um, narrative that takes from many sources and is known around the world. So these are wire art spaceships that play on the similarities between old-school digital wireframe models uh, as in like 3d animations um, and handmade wire art which is what wire artists do so they are kind of ambiguous analog digital objects and again this was an exploration of an idea going it would be interesting if wire artists were selling wire art spaceships based on movies and they were tapping into the star wars movies so i you know got funding to produce examples of this idea and then start to turn them into an art project and this is an this is uh in the entrance to amazon's headquarters in cape town where we were commissioned to do a large-scale uh piece uh using the the spacecraft approach um that's me uh, lewis uh, Paddy and Mark, who are from a fabrication firm that I work with. And this is an animated display that shows some of the key scenes from uh, the first Star Wars movie and the Battle for the Death Star. So this is us you know, uh, now taking on commissions and doing large-scale work. And then uh, a bit of a turning point for us was uh, getting some decent funding from the National Arts Council here in South Africa, which is now unfortunately in disarray. But uh, at the time, uh, in the end of 2018, I had applied for funding for a proposal called uh, Dub Ship One Black Star Liner, which was a proposal to do a music-making spaceship sculpture that would talk about the history of the Black Star Line, Marcus Garvey's pan-Africanist project to return the descendants of African slaves back to Africa. And this is my first sketch of the concept, which then uh, over a period of a few months in a very short time span and with a limited budget for what we wanted to do, We produced this large scale work. It's a six meter long, half ton spaceship sculpture, uh, which was exhibited in the Zeitz Museum of Contemporary African Art on their Afrofuturist show at the beginning of 2019. And it was exhibited for about six months during 2019. Um, And what it it contains is a dub sound system. So it plays on the history of Jamaican uh, dub music, which in terms of stories about technology, the story of dub is very is a very interesting one that combines multiple cultural references so african diasporic music in the caribbean um, which found expression in local music forms uh particularly uh, reggae in the in the mid 20th century um and then dub music which started in the late 60s and early 70s which was reggae music producers using the latest Uh, music production tools and technology from from europe and the states not to produce naturalistic uh, sounds or just to perfect recordings but actually to start to create these fantastical soundscapes um, on big dub sound systems Uh, so dub is one of the technological stories we engage with Um, you can see the big black star at the back of the of, of the spaceship and the the project is talking about space travel as a metaphor for liberation and for the aspiration to get to a place um, beyond Earth's history of of oppression and injustice, uh, which is what Marcus Garvey was attempting to do with the Black Star Line, which is also more of a story because he never actually succeeded in bringing people back to Africa with the Black Star Line, uh, but that was his intention and his gesture. And um, it's unfortunately you can't hear sound, but you can always check out, uh, so I'll send some links on YouTube for you to hear the sound of the sculpture. But uh, I can sh- I'll play you videos and you can see, well, this one is, just, is, a, is another um, view of the sculpture. So you'll see that there's a, an oil drum in the top of the sculpture, and that oil drum rotates, I'll skip forward, uh, the oil drum rotates, and if you can't hear sound, I'll just talk over this. But the oil drum rotates, and um, it has a pattern of holes in it, and a light source inside the the barrel, and the pattern of holes encodes a track. Um, and what that does is that uh, whenever light falls through one of those holes onto a light sensor. It controls the striking.
2: Yeah.
3: I'm just taking my headphones off just in the uh, the idea. I wonder if you will hear it if I take them off. Still no sound?
0: We can
3: hear very faintly. OK, I wonder. Okay, well, that's um, oh, I don't have control over sound on my, um, my computer. So sorry, technological hassles. But just to explain the story, um, the barrel rotates and uh, the pattern of holes in it encodes the song. And that is a technology which you could call piano roll technology or a barrel organ. And I trace this technology back to the islamic inventor al jazari who invented uh that idea or was one of the first documented inventors of the idea of a rotating drum with a pattern of pegs situated in it which controlled music played by toy musicians on a boat and he described this in his book the book of ingenious mechanical inventions almost a thousand years ago um, in the 1100s and his book was read by michelangelo and da vinci so in my project I'm capturing some of these elements of a technological history. And then later the, um, the barrel organ was found in Europe in mechanical musical contraptions that were popular a few hundred years ago. And it's, a, and it's regarded as uh, one of the influences on modern computing. One of the first instances of programmable devices is found in Al-Jazari's work and in the European uh, fashion for music boxes. So my project plays on this history. This is the dub sound system. The sound that comes from striking these objects inside the sculpture gets translated into the echo and delay effect
6: of that's typical of dub music. And um, oops,
3: so the other part of the project. That we're doing. I see someone's raised a
0: hand. Don't worry, Ralph. We will take questions afterwards. Abby, you can message me if you want to raise a question.
3: Great. So, um, just with a few minutes left to me, the uh, I've now transitioned from the physical sculpture, uh, Dove Ship One, to a virtual version of the sculpture. So we 3D scanned the sculpture. And you can see here, I'm working on a project called Analog versus Digital Dub which is actually a, a funding model for, for the project. Um, but what we've done is we've created in virtual reality chat, uh, which is a shared online virtual reality platform, a way in which people can access the sculpture as a 3D model in a fantastical environment. You arrive inside the shipping container, you look outside the shipping container there's a fire burning and there's the sculpture in this nighttime desert environment to the left there you can see a, a cinema screen which shows material related to the project um, move to the next slide so here is the animated 3d scan of the sculpture so when you are in vr goggles you can uh, Experience the sculpture in the same scale as the original, and you can also meet other people there. So, virtual reality chat is an example of a shared social virtual reality space. And it extends the project into our current moment. It, we, we received actually COVID 19 funding from the African Culture Fund in order to do this project. Um, and it brings it into this virtual environment, which is always the same in the sense that it's always nighttime. It's in this sort of limbo-like space. And we want to use this space as a platform in which we can convey elements of the project. So I've just included this clip of a fire to indicate that just as in real life, you create these elements that are quite archetypal, like people want to go and gather around the fire, and we tell stories around the fire. And in fact, when you're in virtual reality and you stand by the fire, you feel hot. It, on that. it really, it really, it really happens. You uh, you feel the warmth of the flames because you're so accustomed to feeling heat from fire. Um, and just as the last clip of this project, we have a we have a like an outdoor cinema within the virtual reality space. And what we've got in there right now is just.
4: Uh, It had tremendous success,
3: but there was also
5: severe
7: opposition.
1: uh,
3: One of Garvey's major projects
1: was the Black
4: Star Line
3: Steamship Corporation,
1: through
2: which...
3: So it indicates the way that the space can be used for didactic material as well as for meetings. So uh, that's a little bit of a taste of the work that we do with African Robots and Spacecraft. You can look at africanrobots.net for more information. Uh, that's my own Instagram account if you want to see more there Um, and I'll be happy to take questions and discussions uh, afterwards.
0: Thank you so much Ralph, this is really really fascinating work and I think there's going to be a number of questions. I must also just thank you because Ralph gave us the artwork for the poster for this session and the poster for our second Session our second workshop, so thank you Ralph okay. um, we get we're going to move quickly over to Nadine um, Nadine for your presentation yeah. uh, and then we'll take comments and questions after after uh, all the presentations and the discussion. Okay. Thank
8: excellent. Nadine. Afternoon everyone, thank you Ralph that was very, very cool I enjoyed it. Um, okay yeah, so I think in the interest of time i'm just going to jump straight into this. Um, so my talk is entitled "Notes on Conceptualizing the Afro the African Technoscientific Imaginary through African Science Fiction." Um, okay. So I hope that's visible to everyone.
0: Yep. Thanks, Nadine.
8: Excellent. Okay. So gaining recognition from mega brands like Marvel through the success of Ryan Coogler's Black Panther, we see that Afrofuturism is a very well-established field for Black speculation in popular culture in the West. Yet as an increasing number of artists and theorists have taken to this field, we see that there is now a discernible grappling with the influence and what we can think of as the interruption of global forms, including that of Afrofuturism, that I think now tends to bifurcate African speculative imaginaries to the extent that I think we can start to tease out um, these varying approaches. And so we find that in addressing these alternative positionalities, um, it's actually quite helpful because then we can start to uncover some differences of how the African imaginary incorporates technology and obviously by extension artificial intelligence in various science fiction narratives. So today, as I mentioned in the interest of brevity, Um, I'm going to provide very short notes and examples of what we can maybe think of as the two major approaches that I think are at play at present. Okay, and so the first I loosely describe as alienation aesthetics. So as we know in the global North, um, Afrofuturism has harnessed this idea of what we can think of as an ontological precarity as a means for artistic expression of black identity in popular culture. Um, Given that the slave trade instituted states of extreme disembodiment and dislocation, we see that Afrofuturism tends to lean into that idea and to acknowledge that black life is already science fiction enough And so it tends to do this through the active deployment of tropes of alienation. And so I think, you know, as an example, we see that, um, like the figure of the alien um, serves as a very compelling modality for the exploration of alternative Black identities and subjectivities, because it's helpful in disrupting um, the fluency of all of these discursive languages that have rendered Black identity subhuman. Um, and so have tended to perpetuate violence and even nihilism and death in the Global South, especially. Um, So in acknowledging how I think Africans are also, uh, much like their diasporic counterparts, um, racialized in the global imaginary, we see that some African artists um, do intend um, to draw on these alienation aesthetics that have been popularized by Afrofuturism. In order to acknowledge and explore how black identities are quite universally and I think endlessly and even arbitrarily just recycled through the global capitalistic machinery. Um, So then, similarly, they tend to rely um, on this lexicon of alienation and draw attention, I think, to both the limits and also the possibilities embedded in technological expression in contemporary and future African experience. And so perhaps the clearest example of this is the manner in which I think the figure of the Afronaut has taken flight in in the African popular imaginary. So thus far, no African nation has sent one of its citizens into space, turning the Afronaut into a tragicomic apparition in the popular imaginary. So Namwali Sapal has written about the fascinating history of the maverick Zambian political revolutionary and science teacher, Edward Mukoka Nkoloso, who pioneered Africa's very own space program in 1964. So wanting to rival the US and the Soviet Union in the space race, we see that Nkoloso founded Zambia's National Academy of Science, Space Research, and Philosophy. So making claims that they would reach outer space through a drum and catapult system obviously meant that N'Koloso's project was met with great incredulity and amusement. Um, yet as um, Namwali Sopal understands him, she argues that N'Koloso was merely satirizing Western futurism in an attempt to reduce its hold over the African imaginary. And so that by us dismissing him as a lunatic, um, you know, history has, in fact, Fail to acknowledge that Nkoloso was an African fabulist and a trickster who just simply never broke character. Yet arguably, um, you know, I I would suggest that African popular culture has in fact duly acknowledged the legacy of, um, by showing how these Afronauts um, do in fact trace and retrace Western discourse, um, thereby recycling it in this act of, of parody. And so there have been very many artistic renditions and iterations of Unkoloso's Afronauts. And Christina Middle's photographic project, The Afronauts, I think are rather striking visual renditions that cleave open these very surreal dimensions um, of N'Coloso's ambition. Um, DeMiddle, I think, pulls this imaginary archive for these Afronauts. And so as we see, uh, the lens gestures at this heroic mode of portraiture that we tend to associate with as- astronauts, um, but then alters them, um, You know, plays with these images in ways that are as slight as they are um, peculiar. And so consequently, I, I feel like they induce these very complex feelings that range from estrangement to awe um, to even, I think, um, comedy and bewilderment. And similarly, we see that many of the advertisements made by the south african franchise chicken licken um, also make use of afrofuturism so i'm just going to play this very quickly Fire one,
2: you are go for resupply for Copy like that, We are good to go.
4: We have confirmed the port
2: that a second Afronaut mission is being planned by the South African Space Program. I will characterize this as a crucial resupply mission.
8: The cargo question is classified. Afronaut Rod Paul will pilot the mission.
9: How
5: about that? on,
2: come on, come on,
7: Okay, so
8: like in many of the chicken lickin' ads, we see that these science fiction tropes bow towards these very um, Hollywood crescendos, but only for their glamorous allure to be, I think, deflated in favor always of consuming chicken lickin'. And here's another example that I want to play because it has a particular focus on robotics. Again, we see that the comedy is generated through the obvious failures of the amateur robotics of Cebu. And all of this is ironically accompanied by that Rag and Bone Man song called Human, uh, which then obviously anticipates the ending of this advert where he's discovered eating chicken dick in the outlet. Um, So we see, like Nkoloso's astronauts, these ads deploy technology as a form of alienation aesthetic. Um, They are irreverent critiques of the capitalistic drive to keep up with the global technological race. And so by showing how these figures are either placed or displaced um, in a landscape filled with technological objects of obscure function that they're sometimes not very interested in, um, the stereotype of African buffoonery I think is acknowledged, but simultaneously subverted through irony and wit and wonder. So here we see the soulful, chicken-licking, eating grandeur of of African ontologies, um, renders the lexicon of contemporary Western technology somehow insufficient in encapsulating um, the idea of Africanness. And so we see that in exposing these flaws of Western technology, um, this approach uh, is nevertheless very hesitant in exploring what modes of expression might in fact be more appropriate than to um, to describe the African experience, um, but there is in fact an approach, I think that aims at precisely that. So, whereas we see with the first approach, it sees itself in conversation with Afrofuturism, this one, which I've also loosely described as Indigenous epistemologies, certainly does not. Um, So, because Afrofuturism originates from the metropoles in the global north, we see that many people feel that the central themes of Afrofuturism uh, largely related to the Atlantic slave trade do not necessarily resonate with African speculative concerns and tend to lead to these nostalgic essentialisms that cannot undertake um, any serious engagement with contemporary and let alone future Africa. So most vocal in this regard is obviously the Nigerian-American author Nedio Korofor. Um, Inorganic fantasy, she instead unpacks um, her own style and technique as somehow more typical of Af- African literature and draws an example from writers like Ben Autry um, as an example of her aesthetic. And so she maintains that her style, that the style that she deploys is not new or invented at all, uh, but in fact an inherited and organic mode of experience and storytelling in Africa. So I think maybe the nuance that warrants um, some attention here is that in this appraisal of science fiction and speculative fiction in the African context. um, This approach speaks to this need to domesticate um, technologies, rather than deploying them as a vehicle um, for representations of estrangement and non belonging uh, in this wide world of globalized and racialized capital, which is very much the case with Afrofuturism. So, like um, Okorafor's description of African futurism and organic fantasy, there's also Wanuri Kayu's uh, notion of becoming conscious creators. Ian MacDonald has a definition of jujutech, and I think Eric Garuba's notion of of animist materialism um, also speaks into this. And so, as you can see from this list, I'm just naming a few of them. And all of these, I think, point towards instances where Western technology, fuses with African myth, fable, and fantasy to produce a kind of syncretic mode of storytelling and technological design. And all all of these thinkers, I think, tend to opine that this approach is deeply indebted um, to indigenous African epistemologies. So I think very true to this ethos, um, a corophore's ovre tends to feature feminist technologies that are. Uh, deeply informed by indigenous epistemologies. And so honing in on an example of AI in particular, um, Okorofor's mother of invention centers on the experience of an African woman who interacts with feminized AI. So Anwuli lives in the New Delta region in Nigeria, and she stays alone in a smart home designed by an ex-lover after he deserted her um, when she fell pregnant. And so, given that these smart homes are acclimatized to the person who spends the most time in it, OB3, which is the name of a home, accepts her as the primary user and sees her through her pregnancy and childbirth. So the story makes liberal use of representations of feminized AI. And in doing so, I would argue that it actually possesses a certain ease of amalgamation and even ownership um, of its organic technologies that reinforces this reading of an AI very much at home in this African context. And so in the mother of invention, um, we see also the manner in which the AI extends itself towards Anwuli in order to protect her. It takes on this proportion of a divine mother. So Anwuli declares, um, and I'm quoting here from the text, necessity is the mother of invention. And that in her case, Technology harbors a personal god. My chi is a smart home. So we see, like the anthropomorphism we see here, um, using religious frameworks to broach technology is another common trope in Western popular culture. Yet, though Anguli is clearly appreciative of the divine refuge she finds in Obi 3, the reference to chi is an intimation that the narrative modifies the trope of godlike technology through local cosmologies. So indigenous African belief systems, though they are are not homogeneous at all, um, generally tend to forego the Manichean and hierarchical structures of Western Christianity. Um, Premised on a more egalitarian model of power, we see that these beliefs understand humans as constantly seeking out the divine balance between good and evil through their individual and often imperfect efforts. So this lack of omnipotence and moralistic pronouncements is very playfully conveyed in mother of invention um, where we see that these smart homes like chi intuit it according to the person who resides most in the home and thus seeks to augment and protect that particular individual and so here we see at the very end of the story the smart house that is plugged into her rival who happens to be her ex-lover's wife um, reprograms itself to actually hunt down ob 3 after ob 3 uproots itself to go and resettle in Abuja. So we see that like warring chi's, these homes have entered into some kind of cosmological contestation of wolves. And so chi, according to Chinua Achebe, um, also inheres to the individual, as he states here, for nothing can stand alone there must always be another thing standing beside it. And in addition to protection, we see that the chi resolves the crisis of existential loneliness for human beings. And it is in this vein, I think, that Anguli understands that, as she states here, Obi 3 was like an extension of herself, like part of her immune system, Um, who has just saved my life, she thought, staring out the window, or my chi. So we see that her attachment to obi Three is both personal and embodied, and it speaks to a very comfortable and loving companionship. And so when Anwuli is left to fend for herself after her ex-boyfriend's very cowardly desertion, and then she's even further ostracized by the entire community, including her parents because of her pregnancy, um, she states that, I'm quoting here again, only her smart house spoke and sometimes sang to her. So Obi 3 is loyal when she is most vulnerable and provides reprieve in an otherwise very oppressive, heteropatriarchal Nigerian community. So as we know with AI, um, there are very particular forms of intelligence and labor that automations are ideally expected to perform, which doesn't necessarily represent the limits of the AI itself, but rather, you know, uh, Um, They serve as encoded acts of subservience that complements more so the ordinance of the master's universe, yet sets in an African context, I think, um, you know, the thinking behind mother of invention helps to modify these inherited ideas of gender and AI from Western science fiction, and also draws on pre-existing models of Afro-feminist friendships Um, to reimagine how human and AI relationality can, in fact, be realized um, as a form of mutual reciprocity. Okay, so I think I will stop there.
0: Nadine, thank you so, so much. I hadn't seen those chicken-licking efforts and now I want to go home and Google them. that is just so, so interesting. I, I, I've long been sort of exploring and thinking about how particularly Igbo um, cultural mythologies offer a very different way of understanding personhood in relationship to enchanted objects and some of the questions that AI seems to be posing have already been explored and answered in different, different cultural settings um, here on the continent. So so thank you. And, and from, from a kind of feminist perspective to questions around masculinity, mm-hmm. um, Divine, I'm, I'm really pleased to, to to have you up next um to be talking to us about questions of masculinity and ethics of care and nerds. And I'm trying to find your title amongst my papers, but it's much better than I can grapple together. So Divine, over to you. Uh
4: thank you very much, uh Rachel, and thank you. Dean and Ralph, you know for your your presentations and uh, also just thank you to the entire team you know just for putting this uh, together and giving giving us the opportunity to be able to to have this conversation. Uh, I'm going to start by saying that I don't know what I'm doing. so uh, this is really early, very early work and uh, as with many academic projects, it's uh, an experimentation with ideas. so, uh, my paper is entitled The Revenge of the Nerds, uh, uh, AI Ethics and Masculinities. And uh, I'm a nerd myself, and uh, it just makes sense, you know, to be talking um, uh, about nerds. Um, I don't know if there's any such thing as an African AI. So that's, re- that's the first thing I'm going to uh, uh, throw out. Uh, and I think uh, we are challenged, you know, to, you, you know, to to really think uh, deeply what it means, you know, to, to talk about AI as, as African, what it means to uh, uh, essentially have to associate uh, what we see as African with this thing called uh, AI, especially if we theorize uh, uh, what African means if we engage with the literature about what it means to be African. And I mean, there is extensive literature uh, out there, whether you're looking at the work uh, of uh, people like Mutimbe, you're looking at Zeleza, you're looking at uh, uh, Mbembe or, or Nyamjus, or you're looking at uh, the works of uh, others such as uh, Amadi Ome, uh, uh, Oyewoni, or Amina Mama, or others. So, this is a question that. Um, uh, really is troubling and troubles us. And uh, I think that's uh, uh, one challenge that I want to throw and uh, perhaps where we need to uh, begin thinking. So once we have uh, determined what it is to be African and what it means to be African, then we can move to the next step to talk about African AI and also what that, um, what that means. Um, but uh, uh, lately I, I have begun to, uh, categorize the world, uh, or categorize the world into two different worlds. One that I called uh, uh, society of responsibility and obligations and ethics, um, and another world that I called free society or society of aspirations and desire, which for me represents uh, a postmodern and also modern society. And I think that digital technology is a product of the second. Uh, uh, AI is the product of the second, which is um, uh, a society of freedom and society of aspirations and society of desires. And uh, it's a society in which uh, the self is really important, uh, in which the agentive self is very important, in which one has to make decisions. Uh, One has to take decisions about themselves and one's obligations to others or ethics towards others is not as important uh, or as crucial as one's uh, ability to be able to make choices and make decisions. That's also why machines are so important here because we have to train machines to make decisions, you know, to embody uh, uh, this, these this selves. Um, but uh, in this world of, uh, in this free society or in this world of desires and aspirations in modern society, uh, uh, where digital, digital technology uh, has been produced, uh, technology has also gone wild. Um, uh, and, and the question that I am interested in, and that I think many of my colleagues also at, at Huma, who, many of whom are actually in, in, in the uh, room right now, uh, is whether what we do we do with unethical technology, you know, and how do, does ethical technology come into being, uh, and also to ask if policies and regulatory frameworks can make technology more ethical. Um, and and I think that's that's a question that drives me and drives uh, the ideas that I, I, I try to, to, to develop over the past years. Uh, uh, a number of books have uh, uh, intrigued me. I the uh, a book on uh, algorithms of oppression uh, by Noble. Uh, these two other books by um, uh, Clive Thompson, who's been writing about the. Uh, social life of coders—you know, uh, one which is coders who they are, you know what they think. The others is the making of a new tribe uh, and the remaking of the world. So these two books have been really, these three books have been really core cool central uh, uh, to some of these ideas because on the one side they raise issues around ethics, uh, on the other side they raise questions around uh, the making of uh, the, the 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 self. Um, and just to say that when I talk, uh, entitled this paper, uh, The Revenge of the Nerds, I am not referring to the 1984 uh, a movie and the Revenge of the Nerds. I must say I have never watched it. So uh, I, I really don't know what it's talking about. I really want to watch it, uh, but I am told that uh, it is a movie that I, might wa- I, I must watch because uh, it, it, it's uh, referring to Uh, nerds. But uh, in this uh, title, I'm engaging with, I think, four or five concepts uh, that I want to just pick on uh, uh, a bit in order to develop this further. One is revenge, the other is nerd, the other is uh, AI, and then we have ethics, and we have masculinities. And I think each of this is really important because at the end of the day, what I'm trying to do is to understand uh, how to deal with an ethical uh, technology, how to ensure that uh, 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 technology or, or, or AI or a- algorithms become uh, more yeah, important. And uh, when I talk about revenge, I'm not necessarily talking about uh, acts of violation. Uh, that is uh, the deli- deliberate actions of trying to hurt or harm uh, someone in return you know, for, for injury. My focus is on uh, particularly on questions of ve- vengeance, on uh, retaliation and uh, retribution that is uh, motivated um, by revenge from people and how uh, they have been uh, treated. Uh, the other uh, concept or notion that I'm dealing with is the notion of the nerd. Uh, as I said, I'm a nerd myself, uh, and I'm employing it uh, not in a derogatory sense or pejorative sense here, uh, or the manner in which it's been used to simply uh, I describe uh, people who are often represented as either foolish or contemptible, or people who lack social skills or are boring, boringly uh, studious. You know, what I want to, what I'm privileging here, uh, is a framing of a nerd as a person who is uh, preoccupied or devoted to intellectual work or academic work or technical uh, pursuit or interest. And uh, within this context, um, a nerd is often. Uh, seen as um, someone who is like a systems person, you know, someone obsessed with ordering, uh, a kind of a, a ob- obsessive compulsive, you know, character with a knack for procedures, logic, and a rare capacity, you know, to introvert and inoculate themselves from uh, everyday realities, you know, and, and also just some from, from everyday passion, you know, uh, a psychologist, uh, would tell us that, and much of the social scientists, that a nerd is a kind of maladjusted social uh, misfit uh, with uh, very little uh, emotional intelligence and uh, a a kind of a a deviance. And that uh, nerds are distinct uh, by their rigorous work ethics and notorious competitive uh, mindset and relationships and often represented uh, as as trumping everything else. and that the typical nerd is uh, what we would see, I think, in the Big Bang Theory uh, and illustrated by the many people uh, in, in, in that uh, particular series, but uh, really illustrated in a character uh, called uh, Sheldon Cooper. And um, I mean, it doesn't mean, like I said, that other people uh, are, are not nerds, It just means that there's an archetype, and this archetype is represented in this person called um, Uh, uh, Sheldon uh, uh, Cooper, and I think it's really, it's a key concept that is really relevant when you read a lot about artificial intelligence and also the tech world, uh, and play a really central role and a really powerful role, you know, within this uh, space. So the concept of uh, and figure of the nerd is particularly uh, uh, important within this uh, uh, sphere as a lens through which, you know, to read uh, AI, to read technology, uh, and it, it is illustrated in a lot of the characters uh, or important figures in the tech world. We can see, look, if you look at uh, uh, who dominates it, people like Julian Assange, people like Edward Snowden, people like you know Chelsea uh, Manning, Bill Gates, uh, Steve Jobs, you know uh, Mark Zuckerberg, uh, Elon Musk. You look at people like uh, Richard Branson, you know Jack Ma. You know uh, Robert Mercer, you know of uh, Cambridge Analytical, and uh, you can add the list. You know when you look at these people uh, and read both their biographies and how they operate, uh, it is this particular uh, kind of figure, um, um, and the world of this particular kind of nerd is that of men, uh, but also that of a particular version of white uh, masculinity uh, and uh, a a particular version of toxic masculinity or or some would argue, which uh, we'll come to later. It doesn't mean that women do not participate in this world, women have joined this world and are often expected to either remain either feminine as objects of desire in this uh, particular world or to become like men uh, or to perform masculinity. Uh, in order to survive, or uh, even though they do not survive quite long, you know, within this uh, space. I mean, we can read, you know, from many of the writings, you know, in the past uh, year. And we've seen uh, a number of female characters or women who have uh, tried to survive in this world, or who also work within this context. And we have examples of uh, people such as uh, Ellen Powell, you have a remit, uh, Rimet, uh Google, you know, was kicked out, you know, and uh, you could add other global figures and uh, many others, you know, such as Elizabeth Simpson and others, you know, within that um, uh, space. Um, it's very hard to find, uh, really what one would call, to, uh, uh, black Africans or black Africans tech or AI specialists, you know, within this uh, particular context. And, uh, in fact, when you find uh, this is often also really cosmopolitan people often uh, haven't been represented as people who are acceptable enough in order to be included within this uh, space, which then is a particular kind of of, of masculinity that you could describe as having been sieved. And uh, there's people who are emerging out of this uh, space. I think uh, if one looks in, I think as a a, a Zimbabwe uh, entrepreneur also called, I think it's a strive. Uh, Masiewa, and I think if we look, uh, there is I think Mustafa Sise, who is also emerging, you know, for in, in good, uh, uh, Google AI uh, uh, Center, you know, in 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 Ghana. But it's often a, a group of people often seen as distilled. But at the same time, uh, I want to argue that they're also very distinct uh, from this really. Uh, other uh, masculinity, which is a kind of a dominant, uh, 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 supremacist masculinity, because of the ways in which they are also embedded in social relations, uh, because these are people who are embedded people, and uh, they are a particular kind of uh, of, of nerds. Uh, I don't want to spend time to talk about AI because you know I'm in the space of uh, experts, uh, but also just I've already raised the issue about uh the fact that we need to ask questions about what we mean by ethical by African AI because I still don't understand what that is and uh if AI can really be African and what that uh, what is going to to mean to Africanize uh AI um the other issue that I want to really focus on is the issue of ethics you know and um Uh, uh, ethics is really what drives uh, uh, this work as I've mentioned you know before and I'm particularly interested in the ethical life of of machines and technology in general Uh, and in fact uh, I have indicated elsewhere that I'm interested in the ethical life of an uh, algorithms Uh, because I think the point at which we are uh, today we are the point in which uh, algorithms can be considered citizens or subjects uh, in fact algorithms have been given citizenships and in fact we are subjects of these al- algorithms uh, also because you know they have it, autonomy and we are losing control um, and uh, and it's this losing control is also the nature in which masculinity is represented often represented as out of control mm-hmm. and that is what is defined as uh, you know um, uh, a toxic. Um, And uh, what's interesting about ethics is also that it's about moral principles, which I believe is the opposite of societies of freedom and of freedom itself, Uh, because for a free person, I think, uh, at least as experienced and theorized within the framework of uh, neoliberal uh, uh, citizens and subjects that morals and morality are often tied to uh, religiosity and also uh, in, uh, therefore, within this context, obligations are therefore uh, a secondary because one's obligations first is to themselves rather than uh, than others so morality uh, in, 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 in my view is the nemesis of modern life, which uh, emphasizes you know what uh, some have termed the era uh, of of the self and that brings me to to masculinity then uh, the masculinity uh, which is born out of uh, Uh, a time of crisis, because I I argue that masculinity is an invention, especially when one applies it here uh, uh, on this African context, I think masculinity uh, is a concept that's born out of a crisis to describe a particular kind of problematic men who or a particular kind of problematic masculine who is struggling you know to to be a man you know in a time that is really changing and, and, and shifting i think in the 1990s uh, particularly in the mid 1980s structural adjustments uh, uh, economic global economic crisis and also with uh, the women and gender movement and the feminist movement, a lot has been disrupted, especially with, within really deep patriarchal and misogynist context. And we see masculinity literature really uh, uh, burgeoning out of uh, uh, within that context, and um, masculinity literature, especially coming out of of, of Europe. I, I, re- I recall like yeah, all these groups, like Fathers for Justice, you know, Fathers, uh, especially in, your, in, in Europe. Uh, coming together, you know, to fight in order to have custody, you know, for their kids uh, within the context of, of divorce. So it's I, I believe it's a context that comes out of that uh, a particular uh, context, a context of crisis, a context of problems. So I think every time we use the term masculinity it's already problematic because it's a concept that come, emerges uh, out of that uh, context and uh, it, it deals with certain qualities our attributes associated with just being mine and uh, seen seen by some as natural and seen by others as socially constructed. And we have learned that the dominant forms uh, of it and these dominant forms are what actually really dominate all uh, of our contemporary lives today and what we see as toxic. So when we talk about toxic masculinity, we are talking about what we really relate with and encounter uh, on a daily basis, which which is this uh, kind of masculinity that we call Uh, really destructive. Uh, And I I think that this concept uh, is out of place, you know, where uh, uh, in societies of of freedom, because uh, these are just imported and used, you know, to explain uh, uh, everyday relations in society of of freedom. But why is masculinity important for me? I think masculinity uh, is the answer for ethics. Why is technology unethical? I think technology is unethical because of masculinity. And um, I, I'm, am I, in, in, in the work I want to do, I'm particularly interested in, in understanding the social life of, those, of coders, those who code. And I think that by understanding the social life of coders and following the uh, a social life of an, of an algorithm, one would be able to understand uh, the kinds of, Uh, imaginaries that are coded into these machines uh, and the kinds of ideas, the kinds of perceptions that are coded into these machines, which I believe come from uh, 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 the ways in which nerds in their own worlds, you know, have framed a particular world which uh, uh, makes their own life, uh, you know, uh, how do you say, uh, alleviable. Uh, So I think technologies are unethical because of these technologies. um, I don't think I have a lot of time to proceed any longer, but, uh, I am going to try to end the ratio.
0: Divine, thank you so much. That was just so broad and expansive and opens up a whole new range of, of questions, really kind of meaningful questions. I don't want to take up too much time here. We're going to go straight to you, Brutley, to, to open up some of the, questions and discussions and then I can unmute anybody who wants to raise a question after bootleg. So over to you. Thanks.
2: Thank you so much, Rachel. So I'm going to get my video going so that you are convinced that I have not outsourced my brain to the cyborg somewhere. Um, But then what I'm going to do is, is I'm going to switch it off because my, uh, uh, internet here in the office is a bit unstable. I've already crashed at least, I think, four times during this uh, the, the presentations. So this is me. I'm here. Um, I'm going to turn it off and then I'm going to... Now I'm unmuting myself. There we go. All right, I'm going to turn off the video. So, um, colleagues, thank you so much. Uh, First of all, thank you, Rachel, for the opportunity to be part of this amazing uh, uh, seminar that you've organized today. Uh, thank you, Stephen, for opening up um, and giving us context uh, of, uh, of, of this particular work that the Leverhulme Foundation has been doing. Or oh, is it Institute? I forget now, so please, so please forgive me if, if I mix the two up. Um, and uh, of course, then you know, uh, Ralph, thank you so much, uh, Nadine, uh, divine, all your works have been absolutely amazing and, and I've been sitting here trying to figure out how on earth am I going to pull all of this together in a way that's coherent and really teases out the, some of the complexities and the exciting avenues of thought that you open up for us to explore in the short time that I have. So what I've tried to do here is at least try to organize um, my comments or my remarks uh, uh, around themes. Um, and I think the first theme that, uh, that, or that I think uh, Stephen opened up with is a question of the future, right? Uh, and when he asks whose future, uh, sorry, whose vision of the future is, uh, is driving technologies. And I think that's a very, very uh, poignant question to ask. And I think in part, Divine has answered that question. Uh, when he when talks about these uh, masculinities that uh, are so invested in driving uh, these agendas and these technologies. If you give me a second, uh, I'm just gonna close that There's a, probably some background noise that you're picking up. Just give me one minute, please, second, to close my door. All right. Um, So divine in a sense picks up on that and answers that question in a critical way and, and 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 I think in that what divine is doing is also linking up with a whole range of literature that has made the same argument that, in fact, the whole entire project that has brought us to where we are. Uh, including and particularly the driving of uh, uh, the trading of black uh, humans, uh, Africans during the slave trade, uh, emanates out of white masculinities and of course embedded within that. Uh, is racial capitalism. So I think that's partly what the the response to you, uh, Stephen, when you ask that question, you get right of you know uh, uh, that that's what Divine is saying in a sense. But there's also then the question of Afrofuturism or of African futures, um, and and I suppose this this is the one that you know we might want to tease out and maybe put in a uh, uh, question form. The question might read. Uh, something like what might an African future look and feel like, if you want, in which the existential wound of being black, of being brown, of being African in this world has been addressed, has been healed, has been resolved. Because if you listen to all the uh, the three presenters today, uh, beginning with Ralph and ending with uh, 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 Divine here, in some way or other, there's a theme that picks up on that sort of wounding, if you like. Um, so, for example, when um, uh, Ralph talks about and links his work with Marcus Garvey's project, right, uh, with the Black Starliner, um, you know, and, and the whole, his whole project of envision to return the African diaspora to, to Africa, that, that comes about precisely of the transatlantic slave. Uh, trade, right? So that's the wounding there that we're dealing with. Um, or when you, you know, the whole question still on that, uh, that Nadine uh, picks up uh, uh, on, on Afronauts, um, look at my notes here, on Afronauts. All right. And particularly this question of uh, the first theme that you you spoke to of uh, uh, alienation aesthetics. Uh, And uh, uh, I love that uh, uh, Edward, Edward um, Goloso's work, who interestingly as well, was part of the Zambian uh, resistant movement. Right. So you can see that too, you know, that theme coming up and how his work you know, gets taken up by by, by these imaginations, if you like, because that's another theme, sorry, that comes up very strong here is the question of uh, Africans attempting to imagine a future, attempting to imagine themselves, um, but also attempting to do so, I suppose, within the contours and the envelope of what has been provided them by the West that has shaped so much of how for the most part, we have come to think of who we are as human beings, right? Uh, but also attempting to break that mold in many ways. So, you know, when Nadine talks to us about this idea of the alienation as aesthetic, and particularly the Afronaut saying uh, in Edward and Gossolo's work, we're going to Mars. To me, that makes sense. The Africans and, the, and, and and should be the ones who are actually trying to get to Mars because they're the ones who have been for a very long time being treated like there were aliens here on Earth. So they're the ones, in fact, who have the most... A uh, 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 tangible or, or strongest motivation to bounce, as they say, get on the spaceship and leave because it's it, here. It's it's it, we are not welcome. We are not wanted. We are treated as as non human, as subhumans. Perhaps let's go to Mars and and find something there. Uh, or maybe find a, a, a new life there. So that kind of theme and that kind of imagination of again a future or a, a new or different world is, is very interesting and very intriguing. And here, you know again, particularly when we speak of this imagination, uh, one can draw particularly, I think on uh, 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 Wilson Harris. Uh, who talks about the literacy of the imagination and what he means by this is this courage and desire to read to see and to exist in the world outside of tradition right outside of a frame that consolidates limited and uniform ways of being in the world a world that in fact it needs to be revised, uh, he would argue, fundamentally and in many of its aspects. So th- if, if you look at that as a kind of definition of the imagination, you see how that runs throughout the presentations here that you've uh, been given. And you see them, you see it coming very strongly out of Nadine's presentation and Ralph's presentation. Um, and mixed with that is the use of humor as well, which is very interesting how humor gets deployed Particularly as 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 a response and as a way of again dealing or handling uh, this wound, this very uh, existential wound of of being of being uh, treated as as less than human uh, that black folk uh, are dealing with yeah, and have to deal with in many ways. And I think in in all of this, I think uh, uh, the question that again uh, uh, divine brings us to, which is also present in some ways uh, in Nadine's and Ralph's work. Uh, is the question of uh, uh, Africa. What is Africa and who's African? So when Devine says, well, you know, there's probably no such thing as African AI. Um, And then he opens up this question of, um, uh, 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 you know, what does it mean to be African? And he tells us the range of thinkers who have been grappling with this question, which is true. But interestingly, again, that question of what it means to be Africa is preceded in history by the question of what it means to be human that was asked and raised by uh, Africans who were enslaved, who for them, the very fact of being human was a, a foregone conclusion, It was taken for granted in their own subjective experiences of being alive in this world. They were of course human, right? But with the encounters with the West, that was thrown out of uh, 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 the question or, or that particular understanding, the subjective experience of being human was turned into a question mark or rather was was, was denied and erased. And so the Africans then had to... Okay. Okay, we have lost
0: you don't know if you're still there. Okay, Bhutle, whenever, whenever Bhutle is able to join us again. Um, really, really interesting. Um, let, let's go, because I know there's a, there's a few people who have questions, so I'm gonna move to those people and please raise your hand and I can unmute you. And then when Bootleg comes back on, he can he can finish his remarks. Um, so Michael, do you, do you want to come on?
5: This is all so exciting. I'm sitting on the edge of my seat. Um, <clears throat> just some brief comments, um, pragmatic, conceptual, normative, um, the links between these dimensions. Uh, it's it's fascinating, this box that, that we are opening up. Um, and the first I want to talk about is the pragmatic, because we're talking about African AI. And I think I just, I just want to acknowledge that there is such a thing as African AI and it would be constructive to have parameters on that. There is artificial intelligence being developed in Africa. I know, I'm more familiar with South Africa, in universities, in firms, in public research institutes, at University of Johannesburg, at the CSIR. There's AI in the private sector, in Amazon, Domestically, There's AI that is active in Africa, uh, coming through Google, Amazon, Netflix, Facebook, you name it. AI in Africa is real. Um, but if you talk about the culture, then where Af- AI is developed in Africa, I would say the culture that surrounds that is more globalized than African, but I think that's something to look into more focused towards global conceptions of business and technological applications and so on. So I think one can distinguish between Western AI, globalized AI and African AI, but then I would argue we need some form of ontology for African AI, because are be we talking about something that's made in Africa, something that's used in Africa, something that's imagined in Africa, something that's culturally African, something that's owned and controlled by Africans, and as Divine raised, are we talking about Africa and the diaspora? Where's, where are we there? Is it some combination of these criteria? These things are all salient towards honing in uh, in a more structural sense on what it is that, that we're talking about. And then, you know, in reflecting on this kind of ontological uh, playing that, that that I think needs to happen, can think about imagining african ai as an act what happens when we imagine african ai what 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 is that process um and that you know in in the research on narratives i guess it's there because it's firstly an act of creating a narrative and meaning it's a meaning creation Uh, but it has many many other dimensions um it's a cultural act um it's it, you know it's it can be uh, an appropriation. It can be political. It can be expansive. Um, it can be it can be an assertion of, of gender. It is certainly intersectional. It can be empowering. Um, what is the meaning of this act? Uh, so th- those those are my three points. Thank you.
0: Um... Thank you, Michael. I don't know if anyone would like to pose a question to any of our panelists, just please raise your hand if you have that function. But I think I'd like to turn to to Boutlet's question around what is the role of artificial intelligence? Does artificial intelligence have a role in healing or will it deepen the existential wound that's been created by the history of slavery and colonialism? on the African continent. So perhaps our three speakers, and, and perhaps Devine, can, I can start with you to, to, to think about what what that might mean. Um, sorry, Devan. <laughs>
4: <laughs> Why me? Why yeah, we're okay, gonna just
0: go backwards.
4: <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. Um... I mean, I, I, I want to thank uh, the, uh, I mean, the two, for really uh, went out very deep and reflective comments, you know, from our presentations. Um, uh, they, lot, they, they give us a set of ideas, you know, to, to think around. Um, the question you pose, uh, I mean, it's fascinating. Uh, the, the question is why, why must it have a role?
2: Uh, must
4: it have a role? And why must it have a role? Uh, and, and why is it that the continent, uh, every time we think about the continent and, and, and any phenomenon, continent and technology, you think about the continent and education, you think about the continent and science, it always has to be towards a functional role. Uh, so you, you, you cannot, when you think about this continent, it's always and we its relationship to technology, science, innovation, and knowledge production always has to be towards something that is predefined and det- determined as constructive as productive. So uh, we we don't have the, it's. We imagine that we should not have the ability to just play with with, with technology. You know, uh, so it it could have a healing role, but I I'm, I don't think. It is something that I really want to focus on uh, so much because it, it should just be there, you know. They should just exist and be part of daily and ordinary life as it is, you know, everywhere else. Yeah. Well, I, when I hear about technology in China, I don't hear the same questions. When I hear about technology in most parts of the world, I don't hear the same questions posed. Why why is it so critical that we have to pose these questions when it comes? To Africa, and I think if we answer that question, we can deal with a lot of the other issues.
0: Mm. Thank you, Divine. and Nadine and Ralph. I mean, just broadly to this question too of, of what is an African AI? Can we even conceive of that? Is it helpful or useful or creative at all to be thinking along those terms? And then, Bute, we will we'll just give Nadine and Ralph a brief moment to respond, and then we'll come back to you. I'm so glad you can join
8: us again. Um, Yeah, I think maybe I could just riff off Divine's comments in answering that. So um, I really like this idea of saying, you know, when do we get to the point in our African imaginary where we can actually just take uh, the absorption or um, the reality of technology as something that we take for granted as part of our narrative. So almost uh, when do we take the science fiction narrative or the futuristic imaginary, and then turn it into realistic fiction, so to speak. So, I really like that idea. And I think that resonates very strongly with the second um, trend that I outlined. Um, so, really desperately wanting to construct narratives that um, do, in fact, um, I think, um, are, are invested in what we can think of as a recuperative project. Um, so, reimagining. Um, not just Africa or African ontologies, but also the space or the definition of technology in our our environment. Um, And so, as you mentioned, um, there is some kind of healing work that's happening there, um, which I think then speaks to the nature of, you know, the arts and storytelling, um, that they do in fact perform this kind of um, psychic and spiritual healing in that fashion. But then obviously speaking into Michael's comments about uh, the pragmatism of this, um, you know, it's all good and well to have these um, narratives that imagine um, a taken for granted reality where we are on par with the rest of the world in the fourth industrial revolution. Um, But what's the pragmatic questions behind that? And I think that ultimately is what informs the more dystopian wing of, you know, those science fiction narratives at present, um, because that is, um, you know, the African stumbling block, so to speak. So when we start to think in pragmatic terms, then questions of infrastructure, I think um, kind of um, reflexively trigger, um, yeah, very dystopian reactions. So, yeah. Thank
0: thank you, Nadine. Um, Ralph, do do you want to come in here?
3: Yeah, sure, Rachel. So I think something about artificial intelligence is um, how do we see it? And um, obviously this is part of your global AI narratives um, you know, project, but for example, when I was researching images of artificial intelligence for a presentation I gave a few months ago at, uh, at Humor, I deliberately did this process of putting a artificial intelligence as a search term with various permutations and then using the first image that came up. And most of them were humanoid robots that were used to depict artificial intelligence. Um, Because we, I think that's the fantasy is that it's going to be an artificial person. That's what we think of as as AI. And, you know, similar to in the jeans presentation, the second chicken licken advert with that, um, the cyborg, that cyborg copy that the guy makes. And that's because I think that's exciting. That looks exciting. That also, you know, it it relates to um, past narratives and metaphors of like the double and an artificial copy of ourselves and so on. But actual AI is invisible. And um, it also conceals itself in the way that it works. So it's part of the problem of AI is that it's it's a black box that you train it and you get results and then the researchers who who've made the system don't even know how it made the decision that it made you know so um this sort of out of sightness of ai is something that is i think um you could say disturbing or it leaves us cold. It leaves me cold. You know, I, I, like, I like physical things. I work with, with my hands. I make things. I work with other people who are crafters um, and I like physical representations of things. So um, this area of AI as being kind of hidden, invisible, hard to grasp is quite a challenging one. Um, and I think it's interesting how, it, when, in ways we represent it, we always put on this layer around it that actually makes it look like it is something, um, when in fact it isn't. Yeah. And and people will even say when I speak to them about saying I'm studying AI, some people's first reaction is AI doesn't exist, and they mean that in an in an informed way where they're saying uh, what we think of as AI is not actually artificial intelligence. It's complex decision making, you know, programs, but it's not AI. So. Yeah, so those are, those are just some 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 thoughts from my perspective in response to, to the prompt.
0: Yeah, thanks, thank you, Ralph. I mean, I think those are important considerations. And I think when we're in the imaginative space, we can augment and expand what we think of as AI and falling within that domain, where it is and isn't helpful. Um, Brutte, now you're back online, did, did you want to just finish the, the remarks you were making because um, it was really very, very interesting and provocative.
2: Yeah, uh, thanks, Rachel, and apologies for that. Um, <clears throat> that's what I feared would help, instead I would crash again. So I, I'm not sure whether it, it would still make sense to to finish uh, with the remarks, but if you think it would, I mean, it seems like in rightful soul, the conversation is moved to taking... On questions, uh, and I'm sure that colleagues have burning questions and want to engage with uh, uh, with, the, with the panelists. So I, I don't want to hold much of that airtime because we have we, we are advanced in the program. Except maybe I could just say make one last comment, um, uh, which is the one theme that I think is also central to the presentations that have been made today, and that is uh, one of the question of the human. Um, and I think that is at, at the center again of, of all these discussions that we're having here this afternoon and uh, I, I've taken a liking to Sylvia Winter's uh, 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 conception of a human as, 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 as a hybrid being that is as both on the one hand a biological organism but also on the other hand, as a as as a as a as a storyteller, as a as a narrative creating, as a culture creating being. And that I think what she often argues is that the, the, what the West has done in its um in, it, in its development and progress and civilization is that it has tended to focus too much on the bios side, on the fact that humans are these biological. Uh, organisms and our conceptions of the human often come out of this uh, understanding of, of 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 human beings as biological organisms. But what it has often missed is this equally important part of, of I think missed in in the ways in which it conceives of the human, not in the ways in in which it lives out its its humanity, that is very much there because one can read and see this whole enterprise around uh, the development of science and technology and certainly AI as we're preoccupied with it as yet another version of storytelling of us as human beings, imagining who we are as human beings and imagining not only that, but what we could evolve to in the future. And I think, as Divine also says, that particular narrative, insofar as things stand now, has largely been led and driven by the West. Um, and so I think the, the 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 question that remains for all of us, and I think this is why we're having this conversation, is to also think about what sort of narratives and what sort of stories using AI and about AI we hear, located as we are geographically in the African continent are we picking up in what ways are we picking up AI and what sort of stories are we telling with them uh, about where we are now but also about the future that we envision and I think that is is the kind of opening that we that the presentations have given us today is to really begin to puzzle with that thank you Rachel mm. yeah thank you Brute. I think I
0: think that's a really really important really important question um Kanta, let, let's come to you. Um, I, there was a hand in, in the in the other side of things. So if you do want to raise any questions, please do just put up your hand. Um, otherwise, Kanta.
6: Thank you, Rachel. Um, I, I think um, f- following from um, Bootle's remark uh, right uh, just now, I would like uh, to ask my question to uh, Devine about Um, the the concept of being a nerd and how you problematize it. And um, so my my question is, what what does that mean for you? What does this term do for you when you identify as a nerd? Because I am in a very similar situation where I gladly self-identify as a nerd. And then I think, oh, but most people think of Sheldon Cooper when they hear nerd. Do I want to identify with that? So is this um so is this a term that that we can reappropriate or that we can use productively um and if if so how, how do you do that for you, for yourself
0: Thanks Divine over to you and then and then as well as Kant's question there's there's a question in the chat that's also been sort of directed well not necessarily but coming off some of the points you've been making Divine about To what extent can we hold or must we hold technology companies liable for ensuring transformation in who builds and creates our technologies? So, I mean, I think that's a question we can all consider, but Devine, if you want to respond to Cantor's and then maybe think about uh, Daniel's question as well.
1: (laughs) Uh,
4: Thank you, Cantor and Daniel. Cantor, that's a very difficult question uh, and a challenge that you're you're, you're throwing to, to all of us. But what's interesting is that, uh, I think over the past five years or so, nerds have become really popular. Being a nerd has become something really popular. And uh, uh, also uh, the, technological, the technology turn or the tech turn to use the, the more, how do you say, the more uh, 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 chic uh, term, the, the, tech, the tech, tech entrepreneurs, many of whom are really nerds, Uh, actually dominate the world. These are the most powerful people. Uh, I I have followed, and I think we all followed, uh, the US Congress trying to get Zuckerberg to understand uh, what it means to deal with people's privacy. And uh, just having a stone face, you know, like, what are you talking about? You know, I can't really understand what you're talking about. You know, these people are making decisions about their data and about being in this platform. What do you mean? you know, uh, uh, privacy. So, uh, but what I'm trying to do, uh, and that's why I start really, uh, I I have to do a lot of conceptual work, a a lot of uh, groundwork, a lot of historical work in order to get to the point I want to make, uh, is first to just to try to uh, demonstrate the number of different concepts that we need to understand in order to better understand the the nerd. Um, And Nerds were really dominated by, by a particular kind of masculinity, but it's also because of patriarchy, you know, who, who was in the public sphere and who went to school, you know, it was men, you know, and uh, who makes uh, clubs, it, it is men. So the first thing I try to demonstrate is that it was dominated by a particular kind of masculinity. Then the second part of it is also to demonstrate that there are v- varieties of nerds. When we use the, the concept, the term nerd, We we need to disaggregate it because uh, there is big variation. I think Trump is a nerd, you know, but it's a particular kind of nerd, and uh, in in his own world. You are a nerd. I am a nerd. Shadon Cooper is a nerd. Zuckerberg is a nerd. um, And uh, what we need to do is to disaggregate uh, to disaggregate it. But also, what I want to demonstrate is just how the uh, intersection between Nerd middle class masculinity in the corporate world leads to the uh, proliferation of particular kinds of ethics, or if we call it unethics. Um, and in this sense, uh, you—if you look at the world and the history of all of these men that I have indicated here, who actually define how we even use gender technology today—all uh, these men, you know, from Zuckerberg to uh, you know, Bill Gates, uh, to all these men determine how we use technology today. And when we look at their histories, we look at their trajectories, we can actually identify certain aspects of a particular kind of nerd that is common amongst these uh, groups of, of people and people who often closed off society for some time and really focused uh, on particular systems. Uh, and uh, in a way, uh, imagine, uh, ethics to mean something, something else. Like if some, someone who imagines that, you know, to solve the problems of uh, poverty, you just need to give people a particular kind of technological toilets, you know, I mean, to use a toilet is a particular, I like to read in a toilet. I like to type into, of a toilet, but it, takes a particular kind of person who does not understand how social relationships work uh, to just tell you can solve poverty by just giving a box for people to go you know do their business Um, and I think that's how I'm using it Uh, I first want to I did a a paper a draft paper last year about uh, nerds and the COVID-19 and the ways in which uh, COVID and virtual life disrupts university nerds, because the university is filled with nerds, with people with competition, people with a lot of violence and aggression, it's a particular kind of, 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 of people. So it's a big, there, what, what I'm saying is that there's diversity, yeah, and uh, I'm theorizing. Now, the second half of the question was the, the, the question from um, if we can hold tech companies liable. I, I don't know what to do with liability. I think it's more how do we how do we shape how people are trained? how do we shape how coding happens that's why i I, I start by on the, by asking the question what's the social life of uh, what's the life of an algorithm? how does it come how do we conceptualize it and how do we develop it? how do we then uh, give it uh, put it back into the market into into business and I think if at the level of training, uh, uh, that's where we can <laughs> shape, redefine. There are people doing all these coding schools across the, the continent. I don't know how many coding schools we, people have established here in South Africa. I go to Nigeria. Facebook is doing coding schools in Ghana. Google and other businesses are doing coding schools. Senegal is a big uh, center. So at, at this level, what we need to be thinking is uh, how do we train people? How do we make ethics a really core part? of uh, training coders, so, so that in this world of nerdiness, ethics become a really, really important part of it.
0: Thank you, Devine. I think what's so interesting about the idea of nerds is that we tend to give them impunity for behaviour that's outside the kind of closed sphere and that's within the kind of social setting which translates to this question about technology companies and whether we should even hold them accountable. If it was a government or perhaps if it was a woman, we wouldn't think twice about holding them accountable for wrongs, but because they're a technology company, there's something slightly different there. And there's a a gap and there's some distance before we think about how they must be held accountable. And the law is a technology too, and questions of accountability and legal liability particularly in this space are really quite complex, but my kind of personal opinion on that is that they should be held liable. Um, Nicole, uh, Brandon, I'd very much like to to come to you. Let me allow to talk. Um, I hope you're able to come off mute.
7: Hi there, can you hear me? We can, thanks, Nicole. Oh, brilliant. Thank you so much. I wanted to say thank you so much for everyone's um, presentations and discussions. This has been amazing and absolutely brilliant to listen to. Uh, I'm up in Scotland and it's just been uh, fantastic to get to hear from you guys. Thank you so much for putting this on. Um, just cop just kind of following on from the really interesting discussion of um, the nerd and the idea of the kind of classification and taxonomy and understanding of the concept of of nerdishness and how it interrelates particularly to the masculine stuff that permeates through how AI is, you know, being presented and deployed and developed. I, I just wanted to throw in there that there might be some value in looking at the actual quite specific discrete concept of the tech daddy as an archetype. Um, that might be worth looking at to explore in some of that analysis. Um, It is a very specific kind of um, almost a very uh, paternalistic sort of ultimate form of the nerd that has evolved out of Silicon Valley, but it came before with things like um, weapons development technology. And in fact, when, when Stan Lee was developing uh, Tony Stark as a as a character for his Marvel comics. It was a deliberate riff on the kind of nascent ideas of the tech daddy and the role of paternalism and technological development and father knows best that was all coming with the people who had access to develop and deploy this tech. And of course, the idea of a father figure that knows what to do and what is best and has the guiding and the final hand. Um, It's a very common theme when you look at how, you know, for instance, the British Empire's impact on colonial shenanigans and horrors throughout the world uh, was justified um, to everybody. Um, So I saw some crossover there and I just wanted to throw it in there. It might be interesting um, for someone to have a go at that.
0: Yeah, thank you, Nicole. That sounds really scary (laughs) and really appropriate to to discuss and problematize. Um, I, I want to just ask Abby, Abby May also has a question. So let's let's take a few questions if there are any other questions after Abby and then our panelists can each take a minute to just close and respond before I hand over to Kanta to give closing remarks. So Abby, let me allow you to talk. Um, yeah, you should, you should be able to.
9: Hi, uh, thank you, Rachel. Can you hear me?
0: We can, thanks Abby.
9: All right, perfect. Um, uh, thank you so much to all the panelists pa- panelists for presenting such intriguing ideas and themes. Um, so Ralph earlier was bringing up a very interesting um, concept of black boxes, um, and in a way, <laughs> it's it kind of just describes magic, you know. Um, I mean, even human cognitive ability and this idea of intelligence itself is magic in in a sense. Um, but my taking that, my questions, um, I think, mainly directed to Nadine. Um, in what ways could we look at African magic realism? Um, as, as, as a way of negotiating discussions of decoloniality um, in narratives of artificial intelligence, uh, specifically with this very interesting convergence of virtual reality and um, material reality that is constantly happening, not only on social media, but in, in much of the technologies that are currently being produced as well. And so I'm very interested to hear in how African magic realism could like act as a a factor in in that discussion. And if you have any ideas on that. Um, And then just one last question generally to any of the panelists. Um, I think much of the... It's very interesting when reading into how technology is spoken about by by the scientists and the, and the various engineers who who are creating these things, and so much of it is around very particular language. So some of the code, the code, the scripts of the code that these technologies are based on is based on master slave type of type of scripts, and I just. We want to put it out there how exactly can can we put into question uh, those type of um, ideas and concepts into into the way things are coded and if so <laughs> what would the ethics even look like um, yeah I'm so sorry I was rambling a little but yes mainly the magic realism question Tina Dean. so yeah thank you
0: uh, thank you, Abby. Those those are brilliant, brilliant questions. So can I ask each of our panelists, and Bootley, I'm going to include you on this too, each just to give a minute, to respond to the, the questions raised um, and, and close from your side. Uh, sorry, we will start. We will start with Ralph. Let's go in speaker audio. Ralph Nadine Devine Bootley.
3: Thank you very much. Thanks, Abby. I'm just going to do a riff on it. So this what is what's in my head. So the idea of magic and black boxing um, for me also implies power. You know, magic is a form of power um, and that when you can't see how it's operating, it's particularly powerful. Something I'm interested in doing with African robots and my work is, is revealing how things work. So you'll see like the things we make, you can look inside them and see how they work. Um, I'm interested in extending this into the idea of, say, large scale computers for African environments, which you don't have to miniaturize something if it's going to be in one place. It doesn't have to be in your pocket. So you could create like a agricultural computer that has large components that you can replace easily and you can see how everything works. It doesn't have to be concealed. So, yeah, maybe just riffing on that idea of concealment versus seeing how something works and what that does in terms of, of power and democratizing access to technology.
8: Cool, yeah, thank you, Ralph. Uh, Nadine? Yeah, hi, Abby, and thanks for the question. Um, I think it's actually a question that's really in vogue, Um, but maybe, uh, in a way that's inverted from the way you, you've imagined, or I think phrased the question. Um, so what we actually find with the decolonization of, in science fiction and maybe in African literature is that there's actually a rethinking from the science fiction angle around this idea of magical realism to actually problematize that um in in people suggesting that um you know magical realism is in fact a construct that has come out of western literature simply because they didn't understand um you know the way in which africans imagined uh, their own realities on their own th- terms so Um, Yeah, so I think the decolonizing move has in fact happened now um, as a result of science fiction writers returning to these epistemologies and then using that as part of um, the springboard to imagine, um, you know, either past or future realities and and in not phrasing it as magical realism, but as using it as part of an entrenched investigation into things like technology, for example, which we think of as quite um, opposite. in in relation to magic, for example.
0: Thank you, Nadine. Um, Define?
4: Yes, I'm going to uh, answer Amina's question. I mean, just to thank everybody for their questions and their contributions, but I see Amina's question in the chat box whether Academics, you know, we need to join the tech spaces and play a role in the management level. Oh, no. Academics are horrible managers. Academics are horrible administrators. Never get them to lead anything. They are very unethical. They are also people who really do not really understand how procedures should work. They have a really poor relationships with each other and with society. Just no. <sighs>
0: Thank you. And and thank you for responding to to that. I hadn't seen that. So
2: thanks, Devine. Um, uh, Boutle. Thanks, colleagues. Uh, uh, Sorry if there's a bit of an echo. I'm just literally uh, at the foyer because uh, the man is closing up the office, so I need to be out. Uh, Really nothing new to add, just to say, this has been a fantastic conversation. Apologies again for crashing. Um, uh, Yeah, I, I hope that we can take this forward in some way or other in the future so thanks rachel for putting this together um thanks to all the panelists you guys were amazing this is fantastic
0: thank you so much Boothley. and i should sort of quickly take a moment to mention that Boothley, uh, together with another colleague of mine who spoke earlier michael gastro and i are establishing a observatory, an African observatory for responsible artificial intelligence and thinking about what that means. Um, So so watch this space because really exciting things are happening and we hope to connect with you all and build on some of the collaborations that we've begun here. So thank you from my side. I'm going to hand over now to to Kanta. I'm sorry we're running a few minutes late, but um, please do hold on to hear Kanta give some closing remarks. Um, Over to you, Kanta.
6: Thank you very much Rachel, I shall be very brief, Um, so it falls to me to conclude this workshop and with that a series of three workshops on AI narratives in sub Saharan Africa, Um, this workshop was the 19th global AI narratives uh, workshop, um, which we have now been holding on six continents. And just as after the first two workshops, I am absolutely blown away by the presentation. So thank you so much, Ralph, Nadine, Devine, and Buhle, for those contributions, which were provocative, extremely well-informed, and funny. And the question that was raised several times in this workshop, is there such a thing as African AI, is also one that came up both in our first workshop on histories and philosophies of AI in Africa, and also in our work on the Middle East and North Africa region. So I'll bring up one example, uh, which is the role of ancient engineer authors, such as Hero of Alexandria, so from North Africa, and the automata he built, which was in the same tradition as Al-Jazari, which we have seen inspired Ralph's work. That role really should not be underestimated because these African and Middle Eastern engineers were the ones whose mechanical tradition inspired the one that led from the famous 18th century European automata to 19th century science fiction and the 20th century development of the idea in the West of what artificial intelligence might be. And then the questions asked by Buhle and built on by Nadine about black suffering reminded me of the title of a wonderful story collection by N.K. Jemisin, how long till black future months. And in this light, I want to bring up our findings from the second workshop on current perceptions and modalities of AI in Africa, which gave a, a tentative hopeful answer. So not only were we introduced to many contemporary AI initiatives in Africa, which i really exciting, but also a point that was repeatedly made was that Africa has so much potential because of its youth, because of the majority of its population being under 18, whereas, um, of course, many uh, Western countries are suffering from a strongly aging population. Now. Having learned so much and having made such excellent connections, I should, of course, wholeheartedly thank the South Africa team at the Human Sciences Research Council, and particularly our wonderful chair, Rachel Adams, and Mark Gaffley and Andrea Tegel for her excellent write ups of all three of the workshops. And the Cambridge team, uh, Tony Leach, Stephen Cave, Elizabeth Seeger and Tom Holonek. And most importantly, all of our speakers and the in total nearly 200 audio or audience members who provoked discussions across the three workshops. So in case you've Missed any of the workshops and are now excited to read or hear more about them, we will be making recordings available and Andrea will again write about. Uh, today's uh, workshop so on our website aiNarratives.com you can find the blogs of the previous sub Saharan Africa workshops, and you can sign up to our newsletter to keep track of our upcoming work one last thing I should announce is, while this is the final Global AI Narratives official workshop, we will be taking some of our work on um, research in the Middle East and North Africa to the United Nations AI for Good Global Summit this June. So on the 23rd of June, we will be uh, presenting our report on imagining intelligent machines in the MENA region and we will be returning to uh, the AI for Good Summit in September as well. So do keep an eye out because we have not finished in this space. Thank you very much.
0: Thank you so much, Kanta. Thank you to everyone. um, And I hope you all have a wonderful evening and weekend and that we will connect again soon. Bye bye.
2: Thank you.